Um, so it's Mark chapter 14, verses 10 to 26. So starting verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn now to look at your word, we pray that you would show us this Jesus of whom we've just sung and this love that is beyond measure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in recent months in our house, I've noticed the tendency of our children to hide the things that they're ashamed of, uh, whether it's hiding the knowingly broken toy back in the drawer uh, or even, sorry to overshare for a moment, the wet trousers that were recently hidden behind the toilet or one of them lying about how their brother got hurt, which used to work so well until that brother learned to talk and can now explain what really happened. In each case, hiding the truth, afraid to be found out. They hide the things that they're ashamed of. But of course, the truth is, I'm just the same. Sometimes over trivial things, uh, putting a chocolate bar wrapper just underneath something else in the kitchen bin so Rebecca doesn't find it. Sorry, honey. Uh, sometimes, though, more serious things. Things I wouldn't want to admit to you now in public or probably at all. Not just things I'm embarrassed about, but things I'm ashamed of, and rightly so. I remember when I was 19 or 20, sending an email to someone in a moment of anger, and I was really quite rude in what I said to them. 
And I remember for several weeks living with an awful sense of guilt, but combined, compounded by a terrible fear that that man might send the email on to others and expose me. Not a nice feeling that you might be exposed. We all have things we want to keep hidden. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, once sent a message to the 12 most respectable people he knew to see how they'd respond. The message simply said, flee, all is revealed. And within 24 hours, six of these apparently respectable people had left the country. Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, puts it like this, and hopefully this will come up on the screen. Here it is. Society is a masked ball where everyone hides their real character. Everyone afraid of being fully seen and known, afraid of being unmasked. The more I think about it, the more this rings true. There have been lots of cases in recent years of the rich and powerful taking out super injunctions in courts to avoid the press reporting on their misdemeanors. Companies paying employees large sums of money to sign non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, to cover up their behavior. I've noticed how the technology companies have made it easier and easier to search the internet privately without any record or history being stored. If I open the Internet Explorer on my computer now, is the second option down. Just below open new window, open private window. What is it that they think their consumers are so routinely going online for that they want to keep private, I wonder? Sadly, it takes little imagination. Of course, it's nothing new. It's it's how humans have always responded to a sense of guilt. Back in Genesis chapter 3, what did the first... Uh, What were the first two things that Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They made coverings for themselves and they hid from the Lord because they were afraid. The thing is the cover up and hide approach can often work well. We do it all the time. Until you come across one who sees through every mask, every pretense and disguise. One as the old prayer book puts it, to whom all hearts are open all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. And actually, that's the situation each of us faces, our sins discovered. And it's the situation that Judas faces at the Last Supper, which we're looking at this morning. What will God do with what he knows about us? In these verses, both Judas and Jesus have secret plans that become tragically intertwined to show us the astounding truth of how God responds to human sin. And it starts with the secret plan of Judas. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What a tragic twist this is in the story of Jesus. That after three years of living, living, traveling, ministering alongside Jesus, Judas would decide to betray him to those who wanted him dead. This is one of the 12, Mark stresses. One of Jesus' closest followers, his inner team, giving him up. He had seen Jesus' miracles, heard his teaching, observed his faultless life. He knew this was no mere man, but he didn't love Jesus. 
and he preferred the price he could get for him. And so we read that he's watching, waiting for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to the chief priests. Well, he wouldn't have to wait, wait for long before that opportunity would come, just a couple of days. But first, we see another secret plan, not of Judas, but of Jesus. A plan to ensure he can celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples in order to help them interpret and understand what was about to happen to him. Look at verse 12. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This was a tradition that stretched all the way back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, when God's people, the Israelites, dramatically escaped from slavery in Egypt. After nine plagues against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, for their repeated refusal to let the Israelites go, God promised one final terrible plague if they didn't comply, in which the firstborn of every home would die. But he told his people, all who trusted in him, to sacrifice a lamb and to paint its blood on the doorframe outside their houses, with the promise that if they did, his judgment would pass over that house. And the following day, when Pharaoh finally told them to get out of Egypt, they had no time to make preparations. And so rather than making bread with yeast that would need time to rise, they cooked flatbreads for the journey. And that's what unleavened means, bread made without yeast. And so all these centuries later, as God had commanded them, they held a week-long festival to remember God's rescue of them from Egypt, called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And on the first night, they held a Passover meal in which they sacrificed a Passover lamb. It was a deeply important and poignant moment in the Jewish calendar. And this was the night that Jesus was going to share his final meal with his disciples. So they asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus' response shows that he had a secret plan to avoid giving Judas the opportunity to hand him over, at least for a few more hours. It says, verse 13, So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, it's not exactly clear how all this came about. Either Jesus supernaturally oversaw these events and nothing of this plan was known by the man with the water jar or the owner of the house that he entered. That's possible. Or Jesus had made these arrangements and the unusual sight of a man carrying a water jar, a task normally reserved for women, was a prearranged signal to lead the two disciples to a secret location that Jesus had prepared. Whichever it is, Jesus has a plan to avoid arrest for long enough to share the Passover meal with his disciples. Why? What was so important? 
Answer, he wanted to help his disciples to see how the unfolding events were all part of God's design. You know, some through the centuries have claimed that at this point, Jesus was losing control of events. Things got out of hand. He was betrayed. It all went wrong and it tumbled towards his unplanned death. One writer described Jesus as like a ragdoll mangled in the turning cogs of history. But read the Gospels and that is clearly not the case. By this point in Mark's Gospel, three times Jesus has predicted that he would be handed over and be killed. And now he explains how all this will come about through his betrayal by one of the 12. And he says, verse, it says, verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now at this point, Jesus could have pointed at Judas and shouted, traitor. And of course, Peter would have had him in a headlock before anyone else knew what was happening. That's what Peter was like. Conspiracy foiled. But he doesn't. Why? Because this is part of God's plan. It's not a new or improvised plan. Verse 21 says, the son of man will go just as it was, is written about him. That is written about him in the prophets centuries before that he would be betrayed and die. Jesus is allowing Judas' plan to run its course because as evil as it is, it's intertwined now with God's greater plan. What Judas intended for evil, God was using for good. And Jesus then showed them how it could be for good in a way that could not have been more powerful or dramatic. He took that centuries-old ritual of the Passover meal and redefined it as being about him and his imminent death. It must have astonished his disciples what he was doing. Look at verse 22 here. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. The Passover was about remembering a time when God's judgment passed over the Israelites because of the death of a lamb in their place. And all the gratitude they must have felt for that lamb at the first Passover, as they heard the screams from houses that had lost their firstborn. They had trusted in the blood of a lamb and it had saved them. And Jesus here is identifying himself as the Passover lamb. And he's saying that his blood, which is poured out for many, is the basis of a covenant. The disciples' heads must have been ready to explode. A covenant? The other gospels make it clear and explicit that this is a new covenant that Jesus is speaking of. And they might well have thought, but you can't can't just do that, Jesus. A new covenant? Are you being serious? A covenant is the sacred agreement or basis for how God can relate to his people. 
How can a sinful people stand before a holy, perfect God? The answer had always been through sacrifice, the sacrifice of the covenant. For centuries, millennia even, the Israelites had related to God through sacrifice, one dying in the place of another to take the punishment for sin. But now Jesus is saying his death is the basis of a new covenant. It's a a huge, momentous claim. And this was predicted long before in Jeremiah chapter 31 we read this promise, and the disciples would have known it as well. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus wanted his disciples and he wants us to understand and interpret his imminent death as the final Passover sacrifice and the basis of a new covenant. A new covenant different from the last because we can't stuff it up with our sin. He wants us to see that in this story of betrayal, there is beauty too. There are gathering clouds as Jesus' death approaches, but also shafts of light. Because in the progress of the treacherous plan of Judas is also the culmination of the salvation plan of God. And in the midst of human sin lies the means of divine salvation. There are two moments in this passage that make me want to hold my breath in shock. The first is this. It says in verse 19, one by one, they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. When it got to Judas, he looked Jesus in the eye and said to him, Surely you don't mean me. How could he bring himself to say that to Jesus? Knowing what he'd done, what he was doing. Judas attempts the cover up and hide approach to his sin. And surely at that moment, he must have wondered if Jesus was about to expose him. Jesus who sees through every mask, every pretense and disguise. It's a moment of electrifying drama. What will Jesus do with what he knows? Imagine yourself for a moment in Judas' place, knowing your guilt. And knowing your guilt is known. Wondering if all your sin was about to be exposed and come crashing down on your head. And then imagine the shock of that second moment as Jesus offers you the broken bread and the cup of wine. My body, my blood, poured out for many. Jesus came face to face with the summit of human sin. He knew Judas' heart. 
But rather than expose him, he extended to him signs of grace and the offer of forgiveness. The truth is all the disciples betrayed Jesus, not just Judas, but all the disciples. In the very next verse after our passage, verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Peter protests, no, 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 even if others fall away, not me. But of course, that very night before the cock crowed twice, he denied three times he even knew Jesus. All of them betrayed him. In the last hours of his life, Jesus was rejected by friends and enemies, by his own people, the Jews, and by the Roman Gentiles, by authorities, civil and religious. It was as though the whole world rounded on Jesus. And what did he do? in the face of such betrayal and sin? What does he do in the face of my sin and yours, our betrayal of Jesus? He continues his journey to the cross to become our Passover lamb. This is the big thought I want us all to see and to take away from this account of the Last Supper. When you are convicted of your sin, and betrayal of Jesus, when you're up to your eyes in it and afraid of what the all-knowing God will do, know his response is this, not to move away from us in disgust, but to move towards us, offering grace and forgiveness. Though he sees through your every mask, his desire is to be your Passover lamb. Jesus here, rather than exposing sin, exposes his heart towards sinners. And when he looks on even those who would betray him, his heart is inflamed with pity and compassion. He doesn't offer rebuke and hatred, but forgiveness and love. I don't know how Judas held it together. This is how Jesus responds to our sin when all the world rounds upon him. With Jesus, don't cover up and hide your sin for fear of being exposed. When you feel shame and guilt, don't try to protest your innocence. Take off the mask before the one who longs to grant forgiveness. We keep our masks because we struggle to believe anyone could be this gracious with us. Judas couldn't accept it and ended up taking his own life. I've known Christians who have been so ashamed of their sin that they've disappeared from church life altogether, unable to believe God could still accept them. I remember an old lady years ago who never came up to communion. And when asked about it, she said, I quote, I don't feel worthy. What a tragedy that is. Of course we're not worthy. Of course we're not worthy. And that's exactly why Jesus extends to us the bread and the wine. And this is the beauty amid our betrayal that Jesus, rather than expose and condemn us, when face to face with the worst of our sin, offers his life for ours to win our forgiveness and with it, our hearts. You and I can be real about our sin. We can take off the mask. And when we do, he removes the sin we're so eager to hide.
I remember a couple of years ago hearing someone say, you know you really believe in a gospel of grace when you're willing to confess your sin. It's not that we have to publicly confess every sin, we don't. It's not that we have to privately confess it to some earthly priest. We have one heavenly priest called Jesus and we can confess it directly to him. But in a community shaped by grace, neither will we need to lie or pretend to paint ourselves in a better light. We can be a new kind of society in the church where people remove their masks to be honest about who they are. The pastor and author, Tim Keller, puts it like this. The gospel gives you psychological freedom to handle the wrong things that you will do. You don't have to deny, spin, or repress the truth about yourself. Only with the support of hearing Jesus say, you are capable of terrible things, but I am absolutely unconditionally committed to you, will you be able to be honest with yourself and then with others. In a church community where we're all a bit more willing to be like that with each other, you know what it'll do? It'll make you and me look a little bit worse. And it'll make Jesus look a little bit more glorious. That's what the truth does. That's a hard culture to forge and to be part of. But if it shows more clearly the beauty and glory of Jesus. Well, then it's something that I want to be in on. I'm going to leave a few moments of quiet now for us to reflect. And you'll notice we didn't begin with a confession today because I decided it made most sense to put it after this talk. And so after those few moments of quiet, we are going to confess our sins together. And then we're going to listen to a song that has been pre-recorded during uh, the last year. It is a modern hymn called Your Cross, O Lord. And it begins with these words, Your cross, O Lord, taught me to see that though I fail you every day, your steadfast love will not fail me, but gladly bears my sin away. So a few moments of quiet now, and we'll confess our sins together.